This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3.16 is, without question, the most well-known, most loved, most quoted scripture in the entire Bible. It is the Mona Lisa of art. It is the Everest of mountains. It is the Fifth Symphony of Beethoven. It is absolutely incomparable. It is without compare to any other scripture. No text has led more people to Christ than John 3:16. A million sermons has been preached on it. Volumes has been written about it, but it's inexhaustible. Its scope is unfathomable. It is absolutely wonderful. It is said that this verse is built around 10 words. God, loved, world, gave, son, whosoever, believes, perish, have, life. And John who wrote this scripture, remember, was a fisherman. He was not like the apostle Paul who was an academic, a theologian, a man of great intellectual capability, a man with a forensic mind. John was a simple fisherman. And therefore, if you read John's gospel, it has been said he's a man of of small vocabulary. He doesn't use the phrases that Paul would use. He doesn't use the towering words that Isaiah uses in his prophecies. But nevertheless, John Phillips said that though he's a man with a small vocabulary, but if John's coins are few, their denomination is large. They're golden coins, royal sovereigns, the kind that one would find in a rich man's purse. (laughs) So here are John's 10 gold coins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Phillips also said that the creative work of God was summed up in 10 commands in Genesis 1. And God said, let there be. God said, let there be, let there be, let there be. And he said that the legislative work is summed up in 10 commands in Exodus 20, we know as the 10 commandments. And the redemptive work of God is summed up in 10 words here in John 3, 16. 
For God so loved the world. Now, for many people, including some Christians, there's a belief that persists that God is vengeful, He's austere, He's hard to placate. You have to feel that He's going to hammer you into submission to get His own way, and that He, in order to placate and to pacify this angry God, that Jesus came to satisfy Him. Now we do know and we understand and we agree that it's absolutely true that Jesus came and suffered and died in our place and took the punishment that was due to us for our sins. Yet it was the Father who sent him. It was the Father who sent. It was the Father who gave up his own son for us. His mind was already made up. He already loved us. God so loved the world. God just didn't fall in love with us when Jesus paid the price for us. He already loved us. That's the reason Jesus died for us. That's the reason why he came, because the Father already loved us. That's why he was willing to give his son for us. And so Christ's work on the cross is not the, the proof, is, is not the why he was willing to give his son for us. It's the, it's the proof of God's love for us. It proves that God loves us. We should never, ever separate the love of Christ from the love of the Father. Sometimes people have this strange idea that the Father and the Son are almost diametrically opposed to one another. But that's not true. The Father and the Son are one. They think as one. They act as one. Paul said, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And so the fact that Jesus came, the fact that God sent him and he came voluntarily shows us that Father and Son loved us that much that this price was paid for us. God so loved the manner in which God loved us. Behold, John says, what love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. First John 3, 1. Imagine that we actually are God's sons, God's daughters. That Almighty God loved us that much that he made a way for us that we could be called the sons and his daughters. For God so loved the world, this fallen, broken, sinful, rebellious world of sinful men just like you and just like me. He loved the world. We said this morning in another context, when Pilate put that sign on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, and wrote it in three languages, which was the common languages of the world at that time, shows us that it was ever in the plan of God that God would love the whole world through his son, Jesus, coming to die for it. Augustine said, God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. <laughs> that he gave his only begotten son of God. If the world speaks of the breadth of God's love, then surely giving his own son speaks of the depths of God's love. How could we ever understand the anguish 
of the Father when he gave his son to die such a cruel death on the cross? How can we ever stand, understand the anguish of his heart when he had to turn away from his own son to the point where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if Jesus felt that, how much more did the Father feel that? Turning away, allowing him to suffer in our place. Surely, surely that shows great love for us because that was the only way that we could be saved. God just didn't love a nation. He just didn't love a people. He just didn't love those who loved him. He loved the world. The lovely, the unlovely, the lovable, the unlovable. Those who wanted him, those who spurned him. He loves the world. He gave his only begotten son. God didn't offer a creature. He didn't offer an angel. He didn't offer a seraph. There was only one thing that would satisfy, and that was his only son. And he did not withhold him. He gave his only begotten son, the best that heaven could afford, he gave. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? God couldn't send a finite creature to do an infinite work. The fact that Jesus was divine, he had to be divine. He had to be infinite to be able to do an infinite work for us. If Christ was not divine, his sacrifice would not have been good enough, strong enough, able enough to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So no one could take his place. Who will go for us, the prophet said Isaiah. Who will go for us, it says in Isaiah. Whom shall we send? Here am I, send me. Speaking of Christ, of course. In verse 14, he calls himself the Son of Man. In verse 16, he calls himself the Son of God, the only begotten Son, because he was both. That's a mystery, isn't it? The coalescence of humanity and divinity in one. It's a mystery. It's a mystery that our tiny brains would never understand in a billion years. But it happened, and it's true. And thank God that coalescence between humanity and divinity is still intact. The Son of God is still the Son of Man. He still has that human body, and he will have that forever and a day. Paul said in Philippians 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. He who was in the form of God took upon him the form of man. And coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. 
Imagine if you were a pagan, you had no access to the Bible. You believe that God exists, but you know nothing about him because you have no Bibles to tell you. To you, he would be like one of the Roman or Greek mythological gods. Capricious, cruel, implacable, vindictive, unmerciful, without compassion. But imagine if you found that there was a God who was compassionate, who was merciful, who did love, and in fact, who loved you so much that he even sent his son to die for you. Would that not be good news? And that's what the gospel literally means. Good news, glad tidings. We know it. We have heard it a million times. But for somebody who's never heard it, who's never known it, what good news is this? There's no other verse of Scripture that resonates more in the heart of a believer than John 3.16. Every believer can quote it from memory. It's so simple that even a child could learn it and memorize it. Yet it's so profound that theologians have grappled with it for centuries. And so we're looking at it again afresh tonight. We've wondered at the breadth of it, for God so loved the world. We've wondered at the depth of it, that he gave his only begotten son. No matter how many preachers preach it, no matter how many of the greatest preachers have ever preached it, nobody can unravel the depth of it. It's a magnificent scripture. That whoever believes in him should not perish. Whoever believes. This is where many men stumble. It seems too simple, too easy, too childlike. All you've got to do is believe. <laughs> but did the Bible not say that unless we become as little children, we shall not enter the kingdom of heaven? And so even though it's profound, and even though it's unfathomable in its depth, yet it can be so simple to those who simply believe that even a child can understand that. But we want to work for it. We feel we need to earn it. We have to do something. We have to have a part in it. But God says, no, only believe. Whoever believes in him should not perish. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that none of us can boast. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Believe, 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 not work, 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 work. And that's where religion comes in. Religion wants to work, 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 work. I must earn this. I have to deserve this. I must do something for this. God says, no, the price has already been paid. There's nothing you can do other than believe, accept, receive. And that's the simplicity of the gospel. Hmm. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes. 
Jesus died for every man. I, I do not believe in a limited atonement. I do not believe that Jesus died just for some people. I do not believe that he, he, is, he is elected some for heaven and he's elected some for hell. A lot of people do believe that, by the way. But listen, Jesus says, for God so loved the world. Paul says that whosoever believes in him. Peter said that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord. Peter says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What could be clearer than that? I believe in election, but not in that, not in that sense where God's electing people to go to hell. Otherwise, that doesn't make any sense at all. The whosoever doesn't mean anything. But we are the whosoever. The great preacher D.L. Moody said, Lord, save the elect, and then elect some more. <laughs> they should not perish. Here's another word that men have meddled with. Even preachers have tried to soften the force of it. There are many preachers today who do not believe in hell, do not believe in damnation or punishment. They say it puts people off God if you preach that. Well, Paul didn't worry about putting people off, he preached it hard. So did Peter, so did John. Jesus talked about it. They say it's not compatible with the love of God. How could God, who's a God of love, send anybody to hell? But they willingly forget that God is not just a God of love, but he's a God of justice. And because he's a God of justice, he has to be a judge. See, they quote John 3:17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that is absolutely true. But surely he had a right to condemn the world. So why did he not condemn the world? Because he says in verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus didn't come to condemn those who were already condemned. He came to save those who were condemned. So every man stood condemned before a holy God. And the only way they could come out from under the judgment of a holy God was to receive Christ's salvation. That's the only thing that sets us free and pardons us from a just God. Because a just God says, you are condemned. But I have sent my son to save you from that condemnation. Therefore, there is no, therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, to those who walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. So why were they condemned? Why is that? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? He goes on to say in John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. 
He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So there's the reason. Anybody that's ever been to Turkey on their holidays, there's probably two places you visited. Probably one is Ephesus, the ancient city that Paul preached in. And the other one is Pamukkale. Pamukkale uh, uh, Cotton Castle is the nickname. And Pamukkale is it's carbonate mineral water that flows down a mountain and it forms pools like a milky water in their hot springs. You can see them from 20 kilometers. It's a beautiful sight. It's one of the biggest tourist attractions in Turkey. It's a world famous site. And it's lovely if you go there, if you just sit in that beautiful hot spring mineral water that sets good for your skin. Well, whenever we were there, uh, Sally and I and Claire at that time, she was much younger then, of course, and being a chatty little girl, she made friends with everybody in five minutes. And she made friends with this uh, four people from the Shankill Road in Belfast. And it just so happened that they were going to Ephesus and then Pamukkale the next day. And we were booked to go the day after them. And so the next morning we asked them, well, well what was it like? What was Pamukkale like? they said it's a waste of time. It's only old puddles. <laughs> it's only old puddles. <laughs> Here's one of the, the top scenic things in all of Turkey, and to them it was only old puddles. Of course, when they kept calling Ephesus emphasis, I think that I think I should have told you, told us culturally, they just weren't up with it. But they totally missed the beauty and the grandeur of it. And there's people when you tell them about Christ and the beauty of Christ and the grandeur of Christ and the mercy of Christ and the love of Christ and the compassion of Christ is right over their heads. They don't want it. They don't want it. And they treat it as a fable. And they treat his love and his mercy as nothing. And they they deny his divinity. And that's what condemns them. That's why they're condemned. Because God sent his best to this earth to save them. And they've rejected him. So there's nothing left. If God has given his best, there's nothing else he can give that will save them. So if they reject that, then they stand condemned before God. First time Jesus came to this earth, he came as Savior. The second time he comes, he will come as judge. He'll come to judge the quick and the dead. John 5.22, Jesus is the judge. The Father says Jesus will judge all things. 
2 Timothy 4 and 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and in his kingdom. It is appointed unto man once to die, after this, the judgment. Now let's get back to this word perish. Is this word as bad as it appears to be? No, it's worse than we can possibly imagine. The most awful word I think that Jesus ever spoke was that word perish. In Matthew 5, 29, Jesus speaking about us lusting after another in our hearts. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Matthew 8, 25, the disciples were on board the ship and it looked as if in the storm they were about to sink. And you remember how they woke Jesus up and they says, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Matthew 9, 17, Jesus says, Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins will break and the wine will be spilled, and the wineskins are ruined or perished. Notice in all three instances, the objects perish. The eye plucked out perishes, the drowning man would perish, the old wineskin perishes. When someone dies and they're put into the grave, their body perishes. Everything I have mentioned, those examples are physical, material things. But here's the problem. Your soul will never die. Your soul will live eternally, either in heaven or in hell, one or the other. soul never ceases to be. There's those who say, well, you know, when you die, that's the end. There is no more. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Remember the rich man and Lazarus and how both died? One went to Abraham's bosom, paradise, and the other went to hell. You remember how both of them were very conscious both of them held conversations. Both of them felt. You remember how the rich man, he says, I am in torments. He was perishing. But he would always exist perishing. I am in torments. Whereas Lazarus the beggar was in Abraham's bosom and he was in total bliss. Hell is a place of eternal torments. Heaven is a place of eternal bliss. Perishing has a future consequence, but it's more than a future consequence of rejecting Christ. It's much more than that. It's also a present condition of every man who's rejecting Christ right now. Here's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 2 Corinthians 4 and 3. If our gospel is hidden, it is hidden to those who are perishing. 
2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. What do I think of the cross? Is it foolishness to me? Then I am perishing. Am I refusing to love the truth that God gave me? Then I am perishing. I was brought up in a Christian home, but I was perishing. I went to Sunday school. I went to church as a boy, but I was perishing. I knew scriptures and could quote scriptures, but I was perishing until I met Christ, until I gave my life to him. And so right now, if we're not saved, we are perishing, God says. Never mind the future perishing. What an awful condition to carry into eternity. And there's only one thing can stop it, and that is receiving Christ. And finally, he says, but have everlasting life. Did you notice in verse 15, the translators used the word eternal life, but in verse 16, they used the word everlasting life? Actually, they used eternal for both of them. What's the difference? What's the difference? The difference is what is emphasized. When we say everlasting life, it's speaking more about the quantity of life, the duration of life, the length of life and eternity. When we say eternal life, it speaks more of the quality of that life and eternity. Eternal life is something that you already possess, not something you're waiting to get. You already possess it right now, but that will be carried into all eternity, all during the duration of time, forevermore. Eternal life is a dimension of the life of Christ that we possess. It is already something that is within us and will carry us all through eternity. It includes everlasting life, but it's life without end in the fullness that God intends for us to have. In John 1, 1, we received eternal life through his Son. In John 5, 21, the Son gives life to whom he will. And so, believers tonight, hmm, the price has been paid. A life has been given. And the eternal life has been deposited within us. And for the rest of eternity, we shall enjoy a quality of life that this world knows nothing about. You know, I suppose I've been fortunate enough to see a good part of this world and see some beautiful sights. And I was driving along the road the other day and I was thinking about this. And I've seen some beautiful sights, and I hope I live long enough to see some more beautiful sights. But nothing in this world is going to compare with heaven. Nothing. It is beyond comparison. 
And I was driving along thinking, Lord, if suddenly you were to take me now and I was to wake up in heaven, what would I see? What would it be like? What would the buildings be like? What would the roads be like? What would the foliage and the trees be like? Because all these things are there. Everything would be beyond human comparison. When John wrote Revelation, he, he could only write uh, in an imaginative way. He had nothing to compare with. He says, heaven, the streets are like, like gold, uh, and the sea is like glass. There was nothing on earth he can compare by that. So, so in his description of that, it was, it was beyond what he could ever see on earth. What a delight that's going to be. It's not going to be boring in heaven because we're going to live there for eternity. And God's a God of great imagination. When you think of the variety that we have on this earth that we're still discovering, what's it going to be like for all eternity? God is going to keep us interested. Amen. It's going to be wonderful. But we need to go there. And the only way we're going to get there is surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ. That's the only way to do it. And if we do that, and we're born again of His Spirit, nothing of ourselves, all of His grace, then one day we're going to enter those golden gates, and we're going to see heaven in all of its splendor and glory. Never mind the people who's going to be there. Never mind what God has got a job for us to do, by the way. I know Sally hates me saying this, but... No fluffy clouds and plan harps. It's going to be wonderful. Glory to God. Aren't you glad you're ready to go? Amen. Glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we stop and we thank you for the wonder of your grace and the wonder of your gospel. Lord, it's so profound, it's so deep, yet it's so simple that even a child can grasp it. And we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that you didn't make it hard for us to receive. You made it easy. If we just believe with our hearts, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and then live our lives according to that confession, live our lives in the light of that, we shall be saved. So we give you thanks. If you want to make Christ the Lord of your life tonight, and right now where you are, you can pray a simple prayer. but an honest prayer. Genuine from your heart. God says, those that come to me, I will never cast away. And he will take you at your word. And you can receive him tonight as Lord and Savior. So would you pray this with me? Oh God, I come to you tonight and I realize that I need your son as my savior. And I ask your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to save my eternal soul. I turn away from my sins and I turn to you for forgiveness. I ask that you would cleanse me from all unrighteousness and that you would save me for time and for eternity. So I give my life to you tonight and I thank you for so great salvation. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk